Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports, music, and baseball. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. And don't forget to check out my fairly new website, TheRinger.com, for the very best in sports, tech, and pop culture coverage. And don't forget about The Ringer Podcast Network, which features Keeping It 1600, The Watch, Channel 33, Shack House, and our Ringer shows for the NFL, NBA, and MLB. And finally, don't forget about my new television show, Any Given Wednesday, which runs every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on HBO and reruns on HBO Now, HBO Go, and HBO On Demand. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my partner Michael Bauman, also a writer for The Ringer. Hello, Michael. Hello. I'm going to make you predict things, because I know you hate making predictions. So This is pretty much the first time I've had to predict anything all I've year. Noticed <laughs> I've noticed that. I've noticed that every time the closest thing we have to a god, Mallory Rubin, asks us to <laughs> predict something or to... You know, give out awards or something like that. I always wind up writing it and and fighting with people for the next three days because you you know you hate the Red Sox or something like this. So right. I'm gonna nail you down on tape. <laughs> I'm so thankful that you exist and were willing to write the awards column. And Mallory didn't even ask me to. Oh write my no, there was column. never any. It, no, it was like you it were was going always going to write be you. the awards column. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I got out of making preseason predictions this year mm-hmm. because of course the Ringer didn't exist yet when the baseball season started and in my old job no one asked me to make predictions i was not going to volunteer to make predictions so and you know basically it just comes down to the fact that i don't think i'm any better at making predictions than the wisdom of crowds or the wisdom of crowds plus projection systems and no good can come of it because like even if i managed to get all my predictions right it wouldn't be because i'm some baseball genius it would be because i got lucky probably and if i get them all wrong then i get people tweeting at me for the next six yeah. months about how i got my predictions wrong I'll tell you so what, i came i came pretty close yeah well this year was a little more predictable at least compared to last year which was oh, yeah. just insane and the opposite of everyone's predictions turned out to be closer than the actual predictions but this year was uh sane and things actually made sense again which was nice but okay i All guess right. before the end of the season i can consent to giving a prediction or two so what do i have to say i am not going to ask you to predict the World Series winner or anything like that, but I'm going to ask you obliquely. So (laughs) I need you to pick the two League Championship Series MVPs. Mm, let's see here. I'm, I'm mentally making my picks for which teams will actually be in the League Championship Series. All right. I'm going to say 
Mookie Betts, because he is the best player on what I believe to be the the best best American League team. (laughs) My predictions, as always. That's the other thing. Like, when I actually do make predictions, they are not interesting at all. Like, I will just pick the consensus pick in most cases because that's usually the the best pick. Like, last year, uh, you you picked the Marlins to win the World Series. So did Jonah, too. So did Jonah. It was like. to Jonah. (laughs) Because he stepped on my my thing. (laughs) Yeah, which, like, I, I admire admire in a sense because uh at least you're you're putting it out there and in the rare occasion that that actually happens you'll get credit for it and it's not boring because my picks will always be boring and i will pick the team that everyone thinks is the best team because i usually agree with the other smart people and projection systems so mookie bets and i don't know i want to go counterintuitive with this pick can i just say uh all right i'll go counterintuitive with this pick a little bit I'll pick the best pitcher in baseball with my counterintuitive pick, Clayton Kershaw. I'm so bored by those picks. I regret doing this. Already. <laughs> I didn't pick the Cubs, though, right? I didn't pick a Cub. No that way. Was no, less the, predictable. No way. And I, like, I picked a proven, terrible postseason performer, Clayton true. Kershaw, right? So, yeah, that was. Uh, I'm really going out on a limb there. Clayton I love Kershaw. that this counts as counterintuitive for you. <laughs> All right. And uh, is so the, the Blue Jays beat the Rangers in game one of the ALDS. Uh, 10 to 1. Is that the biggest margin of victory we'll see these Ooh. playoffs? Yes. I think, I think so. so too. Yeah. I think that might be the one. Yeah. I mean, I would not have uh, bet on Cole Hamels to be the guy who coughed no. up all those runs, so who knows? But you do see lower scoring games in the postseason generally, and, you know, all the teams are good, so there isn't really a, a huge mismatch. So blowouts are definitely more rare than they are during the regular season. So I'll say yes. All right. And is Madison Bumgarner's complete game shutout the last one we'll see this year? Other than Madison Bumgarner's next start? <laughs> yeah, I'll say I'll say yes. I mean, that was what made that so rare and wonderful was that complete games are just down dramatically across baseball this year, especially in the postseason when the hitters are all good. You don't expect to see that. So I'll say yes with the caveat that Bumgarner might pitch <laughs> many more games and he doesn't seem to like to come out of those games. Okay. So 538 has the Giants at 7% to win the World Series right uh-huh. now because I knew you, you would want some sort of actual numbers. <laughs> of give course. me a give me a number for the percentage that the Giants win the World Series. I mean, despite Bumgarner being amazing, I still think the Giants are probably the if not the least likely to win, then the second least likely to win team in the NL. I would still take the Cubs and the Dodgers over the Giants, despite yeah. all of the recent history that I am ignoring when I am making this pick. So that sounds in the right range. I'm going to go 21% because <laughs> this week there was a rumor of a new Taylor Swift album. Oh, yes. And well, with, you have with Bumgarner pitching the complete game shutout, I just got all the old feelings coming back. <laughs> like, this is the this is the year. If it, if it happens again, then we've got to start taking this seriously, I think. For me, it wasn't even so much Bumgarner doing what Bumgarner did as oh, Connor Gillespie, yeah, Gillespie doing Gillespie what Connor doing. Gillespie did. Right, because that is such <laughs> that was an even-year bullshit thing. outcome. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Even the Giants didn't want Connor Glaspie playing in that game. They no. would have rather had Eduardo Nunez playing in that game. They traded for Gordon Beckham in the last week of the season so that they wouldn't have to play Connor Glaspie. And yet, that's what happens when yeah. the Giants are in the playoffs. And, and that's why, like, in, in case you ask me about my LCS picks, I, I said Joe Panic would be my 
by mm-hmm. NLCS MVP. And that, like, that feels too obvious. He has at some <laughs> point been a good major league ball player. Like, he's way too good to, to be the LCS MVP for the Giants. Yeah. All right. Are you done grilling me? Yes, I'm done grilling you. We can, and until next week, we'll, we'll revisit these and, and I'll come up with new ones. Great. All right. So we're talking to a guest today for the whole rest of the show because it's, it's pretty fascinating subject. There is a game within the game going on in October baseball right now that those of us on the outside can't see. And every now and then something will leak out to the press and we'll all ooh and ah over it. Talking about advanced scouting, and this is the intelligence game of baseball, basically. The attempts to pick up on tipped pitches and player tendencies and things that maybe most of the time don't make a difference, but you get to that one pivotal moment of a game or a series, and suddenly it swings everything based on this one little tick of a player that some scout who's been sitting on a series with that team picked up on in the previous weeks. So we are talking to one of those people who does that job. I don't know whether any team, any franchise has ever done more for the perception and the reputation of advanced scouting than the Royals of the last couple postseasons. It got to the point, certainly last offseason, where it seemed like the Royals were in everyone's heads. And if a base runner advanced on a throw or if someone hit a changeup, it was because the pitcher was tipping the pitch and the advanced scouts had picked up on it and they had studied all the throws and they knew that this guy threw to that base and it was like baseball NSA or something. The Royals just knew everything there was to know. So we are talking to one of the Royals advanced scouts now. His name is Alec Zumwalt. Alec, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you guys having me. So can you tell us a little bit about the life of an advanced scout? Because I know that many teams no longer have advanced scouts just for regular series during most of the season. And then they start advanced scouting if they're going to make the playoffs. But are you a different type of scout for most of the season, or are you advanced scouting full-time? I advanced uh, the entire season, so in a nutshell, I'm always five games ahead of the team. Uh-huh. And uh, since I first started doing this uh, a few years back, we, we've always done it that way. Uh, I do get help from time to time. The last, well, this past season, 15 and 16, for a former field coordinator has moved over to the pro scouting side, he has helped me pick up a, a series here and there with some of the interleague stuff, these two-game splits. We kind of we kind of map it out before the season starts because you always have an overlap where you need to be in Seattle and Tampa on the same night um, uh-huh. in those kinds of situations. Um, it usually takes about two weeks in January to map out my entire schedule for the season, purchase all the flights, get all my hotels get everything squared away because some of those game times aren't set. You're trying to, you know, get a late night kind of a deal or first flight in the morning. It's, it's um, there's a lot more to it than just being at the game. You know, you were a, a pro scout before becoming an advanced scout. How does that travel schedule compare to when you were a pro scout? <laughs> um, my first pro scouting job, the travel was much different. I had the Florida State League. I had the entire league. Basically, I would go down to Florida for 15-day stretch and then come home for a few days off and get to spend time with my family. <laughs> I also had some South Atlantic League coverage, which I live in North Carolina and was home every night. I was able to cover half that league and be at my be in my own bed every night. So my schedule back when I first started pro scouting compared to now is uh, night and day. And it's just two completely different looks. You know, I, and, and it was hard for me too because I'm watching a, a 19-year-old kid in A-ball in the Saudi League. And then the next day, you know, I'm, I'm watching a major league game. 
And from what I understand, most teams, if they think they're going to the playoffs, they start advanced scouting their probable opponents maybe in late September or so, and you, you get 10 days or 10 games or so, and, and that's the, the look that you have. But you guys did it differently last season. So how did you start preparing? At what point did you start preparing? And, and what sort of manpower did you have? I, I mean, how many teams were you prepping for? And we had we had a, such a great group of guys that had experience with what to do for the playoffs. Now moving forward into fourteen, obviously it was a roller coaster till the end. And we did send our guys out. I believe Gene had everyone go out around the twentieth of September to start preparing for potential ALDS, the potential wildcard teams. And we split our our uh, scouts, our pro scouts, up along with a couple of our guys from the amateur side that, that were able to help us just to make sure we had it all covered. And then moving forward into 15, uh, learning from the 14 experience, just to kind of give you an idea of the night of the wild card game against Oakland, which in itself is amazing how that all happened. But <laughs> that night I got on the charter and we we're flying to Los Angeles and I'm having to prepare for an advanced meeting the next day in LA, you know, with what had just happened that night and that, that day giving an advanced report on Oakland, you know, it was almost to the point that I didn't even really, the, the whole celebration and the winning of the wildcard game was, was basically the five minutes up upstairs in, in Dayton's box. <laughs> and then it was like, Oh, we got to get this ready for tomorrow. And, um, you know, we learned a lot in 14 to help us prepare for 15. Long story short, we, we were, very prepared for how we were going to go about it. And Dayton was very confident in the teams. You know, obviously we had a 13-game lead. We were in a completely different situation, and we were able to send the guys out earlier than, than, than we did in the past. Yeah, from what I read, there was a, an MLB.com report, at least, where you had guys like in August on the Blue Jays, like that far in advance of the, the playoffs. Was that accurate? <laughs> I don't think that's accurate. Um, <laughs> we had um, Tim Conroy was, uh, he has all 30 major league clubs for our organization. And Tim was starting to prepare. And I think it had been, I think at the there the, maybe the last two or three days of August, he did start on Toronto because of this, the way the schedule had worked. Uh -huh. I was actually in there in August for the Yankees, the Yankees series against Toronto, which was kind of a tipping point. They played, I believe, again in September, and I was in there again. But the staff, our Major League staff, who is behind all of this, and I can't stress that enough, when we had that lead, we were able to know, hey, look, Zumi, you need to go and see Toronto. You need to go and see, make sure you go see Cole Hamels now that he's in Texas. So basically those last two weeks, I was going day to day. I had no clue where I was going to be the next day. <laughs> So I'm watching David Price match up in Toronto. Then I'm flying to Oakland to watch Cole Hamels throw against Oakland. And then he gets, they bumped him to the next day. So then I had to go to Texas the next day and they played Houston. It was an absolute, my, my the last two weeks of September, my head was completely spinning because the, the staff wanted me to make sure I saw those guys I needed to see and, and be a hundred percent sure before we went into the, the ALDS. And obviously as it, as it played out, you know, I was at the wild card game and kind of the same deal going after that game. I had two final reports to present for the staff for those two teams. And we flew to uh, Kansas City that next morning after the wild card game, presented to the staff 
that morning, and then I was on a flight to Toronto right after our workout that day after batting practice to start the Toronto-Texas series. So it's a whirlwind. And, I mean, looking back on the whole thing, it's an absolute blur. The whole That whole month and a half was an absolute blur. So what kind of information are you trying to pick up along the way? Because it just seems like there's so much information out there that you're not going to go see Texas and come back and, and tell the manager and the GM that Cole Hamels has a good changeup. Like, you know, what do you, what can you pick up on? I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, blow your cover if that's all that, you know, there is to it. But um, I wish it was that easy. I'll say that. Um, no, I mean, you got to go so much deeper than that. And, you know, without being able to give away a lot of the stuff that we have, you know, especially given that, you know, analyt- our analytics department does an unbelievable job of supplying the team and supplying the staff and our players with information that is very useful day to day. And my job with doing the advance is to give the whys. The, the why, why are those numbers the way they are? Why is this guy all of a sudden not doing what we've seen him do? You know, we, we get, we're, we're so flooded with the information on the, uh, with the analytics and with the data that's available. Honestly, my job is to just try to dump some of that stuff down so that it's being able to really be used. And, and that's the other thing, too. You have so many different personalities in that clubhouse. Some guys don't want any information. Some guys could care less about who that guy is in the mound and what, well, Cole Hamels has a good change, but I don't care. I'm looking for my pitch. Then you have other guys that really want more and more and more. My biggest thing is to give that, the staff some things that they can't see on video because they all do an unbelievable job of checking the video. I can't say something without them going and double-checking it. And I could give you so many things that I have seen live and turn it in on the report, and then I get a phone call and, you know, Zoom, are you sure about that? <laughs> you know, and they're, they're constantly double-checking it from top to bottom. Every coach on our staff, really buys into this and and does an unbelievable job of doing their homework to prepare the guys. And so when you get back to to LA after the wild card game and you have to go into that meeting, you know, who's who are you delivering this information to and like what are your uh what do your reports look, look like? You know, do you have a blurb on each player? Does it do you bring in charts or you know, you know, what is that meeting like? The uh the funny thing was about that Anaheim meeting, we were supposed to do the meeting at the field and we ended up not doing it at the field for some some really good and a story I can't tell, but it was really we had a good reason not to do it at the field, and we decided to go back to the hotel and um, you know we presented to the staff the best we could. We had all the coaches in there, our training staff was in there. We had you know of course Dayton, JJ, uh, Renee, you know all of our assistant GMs were in there, Scott Sharp, you know, and then it was Dennis Cardoza, who's one of our pro scouts. And Jim Fergosi Jr. had both been sitting on Anaheim. And they, they basically the way we had picked the coverage that year was by who saw what teams the most. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So Cardoza and, and Fergosi both crossed on Anaheim throughout the season. So they had, they had the best view of those guys from a scouting sense. And that's why we did it the way we did it that season. I, of course, advanced Anaheim twice during the season for those series, and I felt like we had pretty good reports on them and we had a pretty good game plan on them. And basically, our meetings go, we break down every player, strengths and weaknesses, obviously anything we could really exploit, any little thing that could give us a foothold and exploit the defense, each individual player's defense, 
uh, how Sosha ran the bullpen at the time, um, some of the tendencies that we were seeing um, as opposed to what we saw during the season and what was being done late. Just in, just to give more than anything, just to give Ned a great idea of how that bullpen structured right now. We hadn't played him in, I think, two months. And, you know, just kind of just giving them as much information as we could that's, that's useful for that series right now. What is what is absolutely important right now and the absolutes that we have to uh, really execute right now. And, and uh, we were really prepared. We came off with so much confidence. Those players were you know, they were still on cloud nine after the wild card game and they came into that series. They weren't scared. Obviously the rest is history, but presented, gave the meeting, jumped in a in a car right there at the hotel right after the meeting, literally five minutes later, and went to LAX and jumped on a red eye to get back to Baltimore for the game the next day to start that series. So um, there again, it was just such a whirlwind. But we did. We had the, the players had so much confidence at that point. It made our job a lot easier. And how do you kind of you know try to capture the information that you might be able to pick up on in a small sample with the danger of reading too much into a small sample? You know, like if you if you see some tendency that a player seems to be exhibiting that's maybe different from what he's done in the past, then obviously you want to note that. If it's a real change, then that could be very important. But it could just be a no fluke, right? It could just be something he Absolutely. did that day or that series, and you know, next series he'll go back to being the guy he was before. Exactly. Well, and that's the thing. It's like you were talking about the good Bill Cole Hamels thing. You know, you see Mike Trout maybe make one bad swing that he's ever made in his life. You can't <laughs> run with that and say, oh, this is how we're going to get Mike Trout out. Yeah. You can't do that. And that, you know, that's the deal with Gene Watson made a comment me my first year advancing that that's absolutely stayed with me to now is that what you put down is an absolute these are the absolutes that you feel are the most important thing and it's once you say it it's what it is and that's you you can't say something without knowing full well that oh this is going to change this could change and it happens all the time and you can't put the you know just because edison volquez makes a pitch to a guy and he thinks it's a good pitch and the guy hits it out they don't come blaming me they're not going to blame dave island who puts the game plan together for that pitcher. i mean these guys are individuals and they're going to do they're going to pitch to their strengths they're going to you know salvi's going to call what he's going to call on what he's seeing you know our job is just to help prepare them for that you know once the game starts it's it's on the players and i think some of the stuff that came out last year, you know, it, it makes a good story. And, and I'm not one. I do not want to take credit for any win because if I take any credit for any little thing that comes out, I better be ready to line up for all the things that didn't work out. And I promise you there's a lot of things that don't work out. Just giving back to that. I mean, that's the biggest thing. You have to make sure, hey, look, you know what? This guy is all of a sudden he went from being ultra patient to now he's ultra aggressive. The, here's the game at bats that I'm seeing where he did it. And is there a tendency, you have to try to find that. Is it a tendency as far as what type of pitcher he was facing that now all of a sudden he's being aggressive? Is it maybe the situation that was at hand, runners on, tie game? There's so many factors that you really have to kind of dig through to find those absolutes. All right, let's take a quick break here and we will be back in a minute to continue our conversation with Alec. 
Hey guys, this is Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast feed, Ringer University, where Ben Glicksman and I will be hosting a Tuesday college football show, and Chris Vernon, the newest member of the Ringer family, will be hosting a Friday gambling preview. We're going to recap the biggest action, preview the most compelling games to come, and talk about all things college football. Make sure to subscribe now to Ringer University on iTunes or wherever else you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. And so will you try to supplement your observations by talking to people? You know, I don't know what people will be willing to tell you. Like if you if you see a guy doing something different and you want to establish that it's a real change, will you try to figure out, oh, he's been working with the hitting coach on this aspect of his game or something? Or, or is there no way for you to find out because you're the competition? There's there's a lot of ways to find out. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm, I'm, I truly believe that to do this job right, you've got to be willing to be there every day at three o'clock to see who's working on what uh-huh. and to do your homework and trust your eyes. I'm seeing this and look back on the video of games before you got to that series. And, you know, I, I try to prepare for each series by looking back at what the hitters have done their last 12 to 15 to sometimes 20 at bats. I'll look back on video at, at what that guy's done before I get there. So I kind of have an idea what he's doing. Why is he hot? Why is he not? And because if you're just going on the small sample size of the three or four game look that I'm getting, you can get burned really easy. And I think that some teams that have gone against doing full-time advance the way we do it is for that right there. Is that Well, we can, we can look on video and get a larger sample size right. without having to send somebody to the ballpark. But our philosophy, and, and this goes back, this starts at the top, Dayton truly believes that we need to have eyes in the ballpark. Ned believes we need to have eyes in the ballpark. Dave Island believes we need to have eyes in the ballpark. Dale Swain told me point blank years ago, it makes so much sense. Don't tell me something I'm going to see on video. That's why you're behind the plate. We don't get that view. Mm. And that pretty much sums it up. That's what I've got to do. But you've got to do your homework because otherwise you're just throwing in, you're going to be throwing in the common Cole Hamels has a good changeup. He's really using it right now to put away a right-hander. Mm-hmm. Well, great. That's not telling us anything. So, yeah. and not to beat the dead horse on Cole Hamels, but. <laughs> now he's been beaten up enough today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you give us an example of something, something that you were able to pick up by being in the ballpark? Because, you know, a lot of the things that came out last off season or, or even the off season before, if it was, you know, oh, John Lester doesn't throw to first base or David Price doesn't really throw to first base. Well, you can write that query for, you know, pickoffs in a season and, and get that in a stat report if you want, or maybe if it's an outfielder or he throws to this base instead of that base. Well, you know, in theory, at least you could cut all of his clips together, you know, all the throws he made in the year and you could see that from afar. So what is the main area of advantage, do you think, or, you know, even just a specific example of something that you can see if you're there that you can't get just by asking a database or looking at highlights? Well, you brought us some great situations and scenarios that did happen. And it's easy now to look back on those and then go back and find, okay, well, we could have done this and this and this to find that out. Right, but you but don't know. Yeah. We didn't, nobody, nobody talked about the John Lester situation. Nobody talked about the fact that John Lester was throwing to a catcher that night that he had never thrown to before. And we were fully prepared for that. Hmm. And then when John Lester started throwing to uh, Derek Norris after Soto left the game, you, you can notice now what happened to our running game. Yeah. 
Right. And <laughs> there's so many things that, and there again, it's easy. It's the Monday morning quarterback. You can look back and see all this stuff, mm -hmm. but preparing for it is completely different. Right. And, you know, the John Lester situation, of course, I think it's been blown up and everybody has seen it now. But up until that point, nobody said anything about it. If they knew, nobody talked about it. I was a little upset that it came out because, you know, some of these things that we have and that we know, we want to keep. We, we want, this is our information. And if you're not putting people in the ballpark, if you're not doing what we do, if you're not doing the advanced stuff the way we feel like it needs to be done, it's not fair for other people to not exploit it. And obviously then it turns around and it's gone. You know, when you talk to old school guys that, that advanced years back, you know, there were guys that shared information with each other, but you never give away things like that. Even to a close friend, you're not going to give them something like that because you know what? It could have been a tie game, and we really needed it right here. We need, man, I wish that Lester never knew that we knew he couldn't throw the bases. You know, and in that situation, in that night, Billy Butler gets picked off of first base. I don't know if you guys remember that, but mm -hmm. you can look at it now, and you know, and you can really read between the lines what we were trying to do at that moment, and we weren't able to execute it. You know, John Lester threw first base in that moment, so you can't say, well, he never throws to first base. So, yeah, he does. Yeah. If you try to leave too early, he's going to throw to first base, and he threw just fine to first base. I think that was the first big one that came out, you know, last year when when uh, Tom Verducci did the Sports Illustrated article, um, right. and Tim Conroy and Paul Gibson were, were had been on Toronto for so long, and, you know, some of that stuff had come out that uh, we were able to see on Toronto, and, and it played out. And But the bottom line is, you, you guys have to understand here, Rusty Coons, who's our first base coach and our base running guru knows and sees and watches and takes notes like nobody understands. I mean, this guy is the most detailed human I've ever been around. He has a database in his handwriting of pitchers and their tendencies. And it's amazing. He has taught me so much being in my situation as a failed hitter struck out way too much in the minor leagues and became a pitcher with Atlanta. I learned a lot of these things, and I had a lot of the stuff that I use and, and have really picked up on were some of the stuff that goes back to those days of being a hitter and then becoming a pitcher, and you're seeing the game from both sides. You're like, oh, geez, why didn't I know that before? Why didn't I use that then? Why didn't? So this spiral, I mean, I guess you could say is just it, it's always ongoing, and there's always something you could pick up. But the, the David Price thing, I'm going to leave that out there. I'm just going to let people run with it. Um, <laughs> You know, the Batista throw in the corner, mm -hmm. um, I can tell you, saw him do it in August. Saw him do the exact thing he did at a game in August that I was advancing. Ball down the line, runner on first base. He goes over there and he just cuts it off and flips it into second base. Third base coach of the opposing team did not see it and held the runner at third and easily could have scored him because the guy was a probably a 70 runner that he held up on that play and he, the, the runner easily could have walked in home plate and it was noted right then. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, that it, it's one of those things. I was there, I was lucky enough that I saw it and we were able to really use it. Um, Jersh at third base, he's so like rusty. He's so tuned into all of this and he checks everything that I say, Hey Jersh, you know, I think you can do this. I think you can do that. You know, the Duda stuff. I mean, we've talked about all of the, oh, there's so many things that have come out Yeah. that, like I said, I really think that it's easy to look now and say, Oh well, yeah, you could have, couldn't you have done this and this and this and known that? Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> if you knew what the outcome was, yeah, right. but you don't. 
you get one of these breakthroughs. Like, is it a breakthrough or is it just like you're sitting there and just slowly accumulating information and watching pitch by pitch and you sort of come up with, you know, you write down what you see or is it like five innings into the game you realize, oh my God, this pitcher is throwing this pitch in this count every single time or something like that and you just have those light bulb moments. You, you get them. I mean, you have those light bulb moments where you're just like, oh my gosh, does nobody else see that? I log every pitch. I'm logging the counts, the tendencies, the velocities, the action, um, all that stuff. And there again, our analytics department does an unbelievable job of supplying me with data. Allows some of that stuff to really jump off the page at me because I can see some of the tendencies that this pitcher's had. And, of course, they can break it down into so many ways to help me do my job. And this information literally will just pop off. I, I use a tablet, and it just I'll look down at my screen sometimes, and I'll just be, I mean, I almost laugh. There's times I physically and outwardly laugh when I see something. You know, I'm sure the guys, the other scouts around me, they think I'm a loony tune, but that's all right. (laughs) We believe in this information. We believe in this kind of stuff. But there are, there again, that information is so out there. I mean, you know, I use multiple websites to kind of help me understand not just the data that our analytics guys are, are giving me, but just some of the other stuff that I've been able to pick up on. You know, and it's constantly, you're constantly adjusting. My my form has constantly changed over the years. Add something, subtract something, and more than anything, it just comes by what the staff has relayed to me is more valuable than something else. Don't worry about this so much. Bear down on that. And are those light bulb moments rare? Because, you know, these are major leaguers. You'd, you'd think they wouldn't have gotten to this point without optimizing their performance or, you know, someone else pointing out that they're doing this thing. Like, how often do you see a, someone tipping a pitch? What percentage of players have a tell of some sort that you can put down in your report and it might actually make a meaningful difference? Well, and that, that it happened. It's crazy. I, I'm, I'm serious. I think that in the generation we're in right now with the players that have been rush to the big leagues guys are making a lot of mistakes now i feel like personally that they weren't making 10 and 15 years ago i think that the way amateur baseball has gone with the showcases and whatnot i think so many young players are getting into pro ball and really don't know how to play the game the right way and so you're seeing mistakes made whether it be base running, which seems to be a very common tell. I feel like some of the defensive stuff, we're, we, you know, we can talk about shifts all we want. There's sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we're talking about, well, has this guy ever had to defend there before? Does he feel comfortable making it? There's just so many things that these young kids, you know, in the minor leagues, they're not being exposed on. You know, whereas you've got some really good veteran hitters, one guy in particular this year, well, in the last two years, uh, Kendrys Morales is unbelievable at things he picks up on, on opposing pitchers. The, the guy is, he is so smart. He's, he's, it's amazing. And he has helped a lot of our young hitters along. Hmm. Um, you know, we had the John, Johnny Gomes was able to help some of our young hitters. You know, Raul Abanez was unbelievable for our, for our young players on, not just tells and tips, but just more or less getting them to think in the right frame of mind uh, to be prepared to hit. And I think that we got to give more credit to that kind of stuff as opposed to the tips because the tips happen. Guys fall into patterns. They're humans. He picks over in a certain count. I mean, then there again, all that information is there for you. It's at your fingertips. But there's still got to be more to it, and you've got to dig a little deeper because 
you know, just knowing it's great, but how are we actually going to use this to, to our advantage? But it does. It happens every night. There's something that happens every night that you just kind of go, man, does nobody else see that? Are they, there's got to be more to this, but that doesn't mean it's something that can absolutely be exploited. It, it, there's just so many, there's so many factors involved in that. And, you know, you don't want to cloud the water by making that hitter go up there and now, you know, overemphasize, hey, you know what, he's doing this, you better be ready. I mean, no, we can't do that. We just can't. They're, these guys are not programmed robots. So when you get one of these breakthroughs and you know that you can use this one thing to steal a base or, or run at a, a certain point, is there ever like one of, you know, this is in every intelligence movie ever, like, you know, we can't let them know that we broke their code or whatever. You know, do you w- have to wait for the right moment or do you just try to pounce on it before that advantage closes? If it comes to the base running stuff, I think that it's more about the timing of when we're going to use something. I don't know what the numbers say, but I got to believe that we do more delay steals than most teams. Um, it's a good way to, to sneak a runner into scoring position. And there are guys you can pull that off on in the game. And I think it's a part of the game that it's kind of died off. That's one of those things. It's like the bunting situation. You know, we, there's just so many things that we, we know John Lester doesn't like to throw the bases and he doesn't like to feel the bunt. But how many bunts did we drop down in the wildcard game? It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my point is that, you know, you want to pick that right moment to be able to really, okay, we're going to, this is when we're going to really pull this bullet out and, and we got to use it because guys make adjustments. That's the bottom line here is that guys make adjustments. You know, we talked about earlier about, you know, you see something, a trend that might've just gone on over the last four or five, six games. Hey, these guys know that those trends are happening. If they're a smart hitter, they know that you see Mike Trout, getting pounded inside, you know, a couple of years ago and getting beat. Well, then you see the next year and he takes the first pitch and the next year he starts jumping on the first pitch on fastballs in, takes guy's yard. And now everyone's like, oh, can't do that anymore. He made an adjustment. And then he goes right back to what he does best. He goes back to being more of a patient guy on that first pitch in and he's back to his game. So it's a cat and mouse game. I always say it's, what we do is, is a chess match and, you know, you've got to pick the right time. You have to set yourself up. You know, this guy can't throw to the bases, but we're losing eight to nothing. Well, that doesn't really help us right now. Yeah. And, and I mean, how back and forth is that chess match? Like within a single season, how many adjustments like that are made? Like if you're prepping for a postseason series and you've advanced that team twice or three times already, but months ago, is that information still useful to you? Or is it just all obsolete now because everyone is different? You know, what's the pace of, of change? And I'm focused on what I'm seeing right now on the advanced report. When I turn it in, there's nothing on there that's going to be on there from the last time I saw them, unless it's something that's an absolute definite. This has not changed. I mean, but there's the constant adjustment. Hey, you know what? The last time we saw him, he was really sitting on breaking balls with two strikes. He's going the other way with two. I mean, some of those common things that you see, you know, you're constantly tweaking that. It's always going to be some change with, with, especially with better players because they make those adjustments. Now you have some of the, you know, some of the other guys that don't make the adjustments. Well, that's an easier report and we're going to go off that. And then what happens is, um, you know, obviously now we've accumulated data of playing that team and, and Dave Island's tracking every hitter that we faced and those pitch patterns that we went with and what was good and what was bad. And now there's your chess match because those guys are having to make adjustments 
especially our starters, we hope they're making an adjustment on that hitter on each individual guy three times. If we can turn that lineup over three times, that is three separate times that you had to make literally an adjustment pitch to pitch according to how he's going. From that aspect, in my opinion, you can't give Salvador Perez enough credit because he's done an unbelievable job behind the plate, um, and he's really matured back there in understanding the game calling, and obviously his catching and throwing changes a lot of things for opposing teams when they're playing us. So there is that whole, it's not the same team we saw. Um, I think you look at Cleveland and their success this year against Detroit, it's scary. If you really look back at some of the things that they were able to exploit, it's just kind of like one of those head scratchers. Like, they're, why didn't they make the adjustment here? Why didn't they do this? It's easy for us to say that, but it's a great example of, well, I think it was Detroit won three or four games in the year-long series, something like that. It's incredible. You don't see those kinds of turnover, I guess you would say, in the season. And if you do, now you got to start asking some questions like Oakland Oakland with us at the end of the year came in and swept us in a four-game stretch, completely flipped from what they were doing the five games I saw them that I advanced them. So you got to point the fingers back in the mirror real quick when some of those things don't work out and those guys do make the adjustments. It is definitely tougher in division because you play each other so much. And how much do you believe that players' true talent fluctuates within a year? Like on the internet, we have projection systems, right? And, and they update every day based on what the player's done recently. And then, you know, it weights the recent performance more heavily, but not really. Like, you know, you could be in a slump for a couple of weeks and your your projection based on the stats will not be that much different from what it was two weeks ago. But your job is at least in part to pick up on real fluctuations in a player's talent. So do you come across cases where maybe you have a true talent 300 hitter or whatever metric you want to use? That's what he is over the long haul. But right now in this series, I think he's a 200 hitter because he's in a funk. He's doing something wrong at the plate. He is nursing a hamstring, whatever it is. And, you know, if you're heading into a postseason series and you're putting it on your report, how much do players fluctuate like that within a season, do you think? I mean, 162-game season, even even the absolute best guys, the Mike Trouts, uh, the Bryce Harpers, the, their season's not always up, up. I mean, they're always going to go through these waves, and they're going to go through these mini slumps. And the very best, and I'm going to go all the way to the top, the very best hitters in the game, in my opinion, is the fact that they're able to stop those downhill slides quicker than the regular guy. They're going to go through them, but they're able to stop them and there again, there, there's so many factors there. The health, like you talked about with the injuries, uh, you know, if they've got it, if he's nursing a hamstring, uh, it's going to affect his swing in some way or, or another. And, you know, you've got to be able to look at it and go, hey, look, he can't get to this. David Wright, you know, last year, he, he was playing so hurt. I mean, the guy's right. a hero. He's an absolute hero. 90% of players would not have been playing through what he was playing through. And you've got to give the guy some credit for that. Um, and, I mean, there's so many guys that, that that has come up on, especially in the postseason. I mean, they're, it's all out on the line. I mean, they're having to play through pain. If you're not playing through pain in September and, and, and into October, that just means you didn't play April through August. So there is. I mean, you have to be able to pick up on that stuff of, hey, there's this guy's not listed on the injury report, but something's not right. You need to figure out what is the matter with him. From us being able to relay that information over the staff, hey, look, I know this guy can always get to a fastball in. You can't get it right now. You can get in on him because because he's nursing a hamstring or he's got a tight back or 
whatever the situation or scenario may be. I mean, you've got to try to find that out. If you're just watching that on video and you're saying, well, uh, I don't know. You just, you just getting beat in there. Well, why? Mm. Why is this guy all of a sudden not swinging at the first pitch when he is always swung at the first pitch or vice versa, or this guy kills lefties right now. He's calling us like, why? I mean, there's got to be a why factor. The numbers are great. The data is great, but we've got to know why. All right. And last question, we're now in the postseason, And I mean, the things you're describing, it sounds like could potentially make a huge difference if you are able to pick up on the why in these tendencies. It could swing a game. It could swing a series. And I mean, this is kind of an impossible question to answer, but how much of a difference would it make, do you think, in a in a typical series if, you know, one team just didn't do any advance work? And, of course, in the postseason, you know, every team has scouts on its opponent and presumably, you know, all the teams have good scouts doing that and maybe some are better than others. But they're all probably some level of competence. But if one team just said, oh, we're just going to wing it, you know, we're not even going to prepare at all. We're just going to go in and play. How would that manifest itself? You had two evenly matched teams. Would the team that didn't do advanced work never win? Would it win 10% less often? Would it not make a difference nine times out of 10, but then the 10th time it would make all the difference? I believe in it 100%. If you look at the history, even recent history, San Francisco Giants are a team that that they have two advanced scouts, two full-time advanced scouts, and Steve Balboni and Keith Champion. Some of the success that that organization has felt over the last six years, um, in particular with the World Series, these guys are at the center of it too. Now, granted, when you have Mass and Bumgarner throwing like he did, you know, and against us in the World Series in 14, that helps. Yeah. Um, that's a big bullet to use. Um, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I will say this. I do know that not 100% of the teams um, have advanced for the playoffs, mm. during the playoffs, which I'm not going to get into as far as the, the, the details there, but it's one of those things, and, and it goes back to Dayton said, it, we'd rather have the information and not have to use it than be in a situation where we didn't have the information and we had no way to use it. Yeah. Hey, I did a lot of advanced scouting this year, and look where we ended up. We were an 81 and 81 ball club. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the playoffs, why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you have eyes in the ballpark, multiple sets of eyes uh, watching these teams? Those stars only are going to line so many times in a guy's playing career, coaching career, management. Why wouldn't you do it? I, I would. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I'd have 10 of you. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to ask one more just because I'll kick myself if, if we have you here and I don't. When that ball gets by Gregor Blanco in uh, Game 7, I'm not going to ask you to say whether <laughs> the hold was the right decision or not, but what's going through your mind when, when you're watching that? The, the hold, well, I will. I have no I have no problem there. The, the, the call was absolutely 100% correct. Holding Gordon at third. If Brandon Crawford doesn't get enough credit for how good of a shortstop he is. And if he had caught that ball and turned around and threw like I have seen him throw and like other people in our organization have seen him throw, I might have passed out right there. Winning run, absolutely. Okay, we can take the chance on the winning run. But the tying run with Salvi coming up and Salvi's clutch wild card hit on a pitch that was not even in the strike zone against Madison Bumgarner, I'll take those chances. I, I would do it again. I would do it 100 times in a row before I ever thought to test Brandon Crawford's throw to home plate. And me and Jersh have laughed. Last spring training, we laughed so much about it because that was his question. Every time he had an interview, that was the question he was asked. And I just kept laughing. And our inside joke was, 
why don't you just throw me under the bus, Jersh, and say, <laughs> well, the advanced guy. <laughs> you know, um, and Jersh would have been the first guy to step up and say, you know what, I shouldn't have sat on my diet if he gets, well, when he would have gotten thrown out at the plate. Because <laughs> I, I have no, and my wife, to this day, my wife still gets on me about, we should have sent him. <laughs> she hasn't seen Brandon Crawford throw like I've seen him throw. <laughs> so, um, because in my opinion, it's a 70 arm. And his accuracy is unbelievable. And you know, didn't factor in the fact of who's catching the ball to make the tag on top of it. Mm-hmm. It's a very bad combination to try to exploit. What if Gordon falls down? He just as easily could have fallen down coming mm-hmm. around third right there. It's a great question. And you know what? I, I hope that that lived in baseball history. That night was, was unbelievable. So much so that I sit in my advanced scout seat for the playoff games, just like I would do during the season. And no different in the World Series. I watch every World Series game from my seat and advance it just like I would any other game. But that night when Madison Bumgarner came in, I left my seat and gave my seat to one of our interns and let him sit there and enjoy that. I went and sat up with my family for the rest of the game just because at that point it's over. Yeah, there's nothing left to I can't do anything. I can't do anything, you know, but I didn't want to watch it for me. I don't play that. Bumgarner's he single-handedly just stuck the knife in us and um he's he's an unbelievable competitor i wish we had him <laughs> i wish we had a, you know you could have a guy like him um but would you have sent i'm gonna throw it right back in your court would you have sent you've seen well, now that i've talked to you and now that you you know <laughs> i i guess i disclose now i really believe that that would have been bad because crawford i would challenge you to go look at some of his if you can, some of his cuts and relays, because they are about as clean as it gets. So much so that I will say that on the end of the report, it's funny because me and George have joked about it, but there it is. Do not test <laughs> Brandon Croft. Do not test him. And that, that's in there. you got to give the guys a lot of credit they, that they even got there because did anybody have us pick to play the San Francisco Giants in Game 7 of the World Series? Nope. No. <laughs> no. Nobody. If they do. I'd, I'd tell them they're a liar because I, I didn't. <laughs> nobody did. I, I feel so lucky that I was even involved in, in such a small, minuscule way. All right. Well, this has been fascinating, and I feel like if if we could ever sit next to you at a game and you could actually tell us what you were picking up on, it would probably just blow our <laughs> minds, and we would never watch baseball the same way again. But uh, even this little look that you've given us is uh, pretty illuminating. So thank you very much for all of your time. No, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. You can find Alec on Twitter at Zoomy Zoomy Zoom, and uh, you can watch his handiwork on the field next year. You just won't know what it was exactly, but that doesn't mean it won't be making a difference. So we will end there for today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to read our baseball coverage at The Ringer, just go to theringer.com, click on any baseball article you see. Inside those articles, just click on the 2016 MLB Playoffs banner, and you'll be taken to a page with all of our playoff coverage. So we hope you'll follow along with us throughout the month. Enjoy a weekend packed with playoff baseball we will be back with a new episode of the ringer mlb show next tuesday 